Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation, it's time for another edition of the podcast designed for the most die-hard Georgia fans in the country. Here are your hosts, Tyler and Charlie. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. I'm Tyler, and hear me today in the Glory UGA studio for another Mailbag Monday is my coach, Charlie. Did you just call this a studio? Yeah. Don't you think that's a little misleading for our listeners? Okay, first off, how dare you? I mean... It's just something that you say when you host a podcast or radio show or what. At least that's what I hear people say, so we're going to go with it. Yeah, and what is a studio? A studio is where you record something, right? Well, I mean, but this is... We have a setup here. We've got some equipment. It's not like high-level equipment, but it's equipment. This is like a home office that's decorated in purely red, black, and gray and white. And what is wrong with that? And it has some books. Which you don't let people touch. A lot of boxes, a lot of bo- a lot of yeah. shoe boxes in there, here. There's a, a lot large of shoes. Shoe obsession. Not no 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 not a shoe obsession. A shoe appreciation. Okay, let's count the shoes I see right now. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten. At least ten pairs. There's another pair hiding behind the okay. case over there. Eleven. And I got my feet. Twelve. I love shoes. At least. I love shoes. And I know there's listeners out there that are that are with me on that, right? Come on. It's, it's not an obsession. It's a, it's a shoe appreciation. I mean, I just don't know how many pairs of gray shoes you can have. They're not gray. What are you talking about? I got gray, red, black, white, yeah. yellow. You I got see, all sorts of different colors. You got to accessorize, Charlie. Here. You got to accessorize. Okay. How many pairs of shoes do you have? I, I don't know. Like I don't two, have like as many as two, you. Two, probably, right? I mean, you know, they're versatile. So you have you have work shoes, you have flip flops, and you have running shoes. Oh, you got tennis shoes too. So four pair. Yeah, probably. About it. I mean, no, I don't have just four pairs of shoes, but so then, then I don't what are you talking have about? a lot of variety because that just stresses me out. You're just shoe shaming. When you just have a, I'm not shaming you. It's just funny. No one cares if women have a lot of shoes. Why can't a dude have a lot of shoes? I mean, it's more power to you. I'm just saying this is not a studio. It's your okay. closet. Well, all right, it's. Obviously, kind of tongue-in-cheek. No, it's clearly not a studio. It is pretty much my Georgia-themed closet. Yes, but like obviously, I this is not some fancy show. We're not high class here. We just we're a little mom and pop shop. Of course, it's not like a real studio, but it's it's our studio. And like no one cares what we call it. Like, and am I supposed to just say, "Hey, joining me here in my Georgia-themed closet"? Is that what would you rather me say? I mean, no. It's not a closet. It is it's an office. This is a home office. Yeah. I wouldn't qualify as a studio, though. 
but that kind of is just what you say when you're recording a podcast. Six is one half a dozen. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So let's get to the actual reason we are here, which of course is to talk some Georgia sports. Once again, we are dipping into our offseason mailbag to answer your questions. Just a friendly reminder uh, to put this out to everyone. Feel free to send in any questions you have about any Georgia sport, anything really, whatever is on your mind. It doesn't really matter to us. We'll cover it here on this show. Um, anything, anytime anything comes to your mind, just send it in to us. Uh, we'll answer it here on the show. You can send it to us at glory underscore UGA podcast uh, on Twitter. You can also email us at glorygapodcast at gmail.com. Either way, it works. You can DM us, you can tweet us, email us, whatever works for you guys works for us. And I mean, you guys always come up with some great topics for us to discuss here on the show, and we always very much welcome the interaction. So send those questions to us anytime they come to mind. But all right, Charlie, what questions do you got for me today? All right, well, we're going to start with a couple of follow-up questions to our conversation last week regarding Kirby Smart as Mark Rick 2.0. Steven is actually taking issue with your assessment. Oh. So he says... If you're going to compare Rick to Smart, you should consider where the programs were when they inherited them. Would you really say Rick inherited a better program than Kirby did? He says those Donnan teams weren't putting up double-digit wins on a consistent basis. Excuse me. All right, so Steven is coming for me today, and I love it. No worries, man. I really actually appreciate this question. It's a very thoughtful question, and Steven, I know that you sent this to me shortly after, maybe the, the day after we posted the episode where we were talking about Kirby Smart as potentially Mark Rick 2.0. I know you sent it to me that, I think that following day. So it's been about a week since I got back to you and I don't want you to think that I was just ignoring you. It was just a really thoughtful question. So I thought it deserved a really thoughtful response and I wanted to give you that thoughtful response here on the podcast today. Because you, you can only get across so many ideas on Twitter, even if it's a DM and typing long, drawn-out responses. That's just, nobody wants to read that. Nobody wants to type that. So I figured it'd just be easier to put it here on the show. But I'd also love to get your feedback to this response, though, Stephen. It's because it's, again, a really thoughtful question. So again, just going back to the question here, uh, the general theme is basically that when you're, it's tough to say Kirby Smart is better than Mark Rick when you factor in where the Georgia program was when each of those two coaches took over the job. And as Stephen said, his argument is that, at least as far as I interpret it, that Kirby Smart inherited a much better program than Mark Richt inherited from Jim Donham, which undercuts my argument that Kirby Smart might be a better coach because he has the program in a better place right now than at any point under Mark Richt. And I I totally see where you're coming from, Stephen. This is not like a, a... an unreasonable question at all. It it makes a lot of sense. The idea that Kirby Smart inherited a better program than Mark Rick, at least on the surface. But my, my response to that would just be to say, did Kirby really actually inherit a better program than Mark Rick did? I don't know if you can unquestionably say that that is indeed the case. Look, you guys know I love Mark Rick. I, I absolutely love the guy. I think it was the right time to move on from him. It got stale at the end, and we needed to make a change there and kind of reinvigorated the program. Kirby's taking it to new heights. But I still love Mark Rick. And as I said on the show last week, this idea, like this invective that Mark that Kirby Smart is Mark Rick 2.0, it's used as an insult. 
But I just don't view it that way because I just simply have a higher opinion of Mark Rick than I guess the average college football fan does. And maybe that's because I'm close to the program and I do value Mark Rick as an individual and have a lot of respect for him. But I also think you can look at it objectively and say Mark Rick was largely fantastic as the head coach here at the University of Georgia. Again, yes, we know things got out of hand a little bit at the end. He lost control of the program to a degree, made some questionable hires, and that ultimately spelled his doom. But that doesn't mean that Mark Rick wasn't a great coach for the better part of 15 years while he was here in Athens. So I want to put that out there. He clearly, Mark Rick clearly set a great foundation for Kirby to build off of, and I will not argue otherwise. But at the same time, I would also argue that Jim Donnan did largely the exact same thing for Mark Rick. Yes, early in his career, Mark Rick certainly won at a level that Jim Donnan never quite achieved. Jim Donnan never won an SEC title, never got to the SEC title game. Mark Rick, we know, won two SEC titles in his first couple years, 2002, 2005. But he also never won an SEC title after 2005. And I say that because a lot of those players that Mark Rick built his early success with, those were guys that were recruited and signed by Jim Donnan. Let me just run through some guys at the top of my head. Let's think, okay, yeah, let's start with David Green, David Pollock, Sean Jones, Musa Smith, right, 2002, Reggie Brown, Jonathan Sullivan, Boss Bailey, Terrence Edwards, John Stinchcomb, Tim Wansley, Will Witherspoon, Michael Johnson. Do we win the 2002 SEC title without that catch against Auburn in the end zone there? I don't know. Tony Gilbert, all those guys were recruited and signed by Jim Donnan. And yes, Mark had to coach those guys up. Yes, he had to deploy them correctly and go win a title with them. But the fact is, Mark Rick didn't bring those players in. If you're talking about where was the program when Mark Rick took over versus where, where was the program when Kirby Smart took over, I would just argue the program was in pretty good shape when Mark Rick took over. I, I think the fact is we had a very, at the very least, had a very good roster when Rick took over the job. Really, I mean, maybe not quite the roster that Kirby Smart took over, but really, I don't think not that far off the roster that we had when Kirby Smart took over in 2016. In fact, that 2013 class that Kirby inherited was an abject disaster. I think you can you can argue that went a long way towards getting Mark Rick fired. That, that class just completely fizzled out. So our roster wasn't great. It was good. But it wasn't elite. It wasn't even great in 2016 or after the 2015 season when Kirby Smart took over. And let's look at the numbers here. If we're talking about the program that Kirby Smart inherited versus the program Mark Rick inherited, I think it's reasonable to compare Jim Donnan's last four years before Rick took over with Rick's last four years before Kirby Smart took over if we're trying to say, okay, where was the program when each one of these coaches took over? So if you go back and look at Jim Donnan from 1997 to the year 2000, he was 35 and 13 overall. Mark Rick from 2012 to 2015, his last four years on the job was 40 and 13. But you also have to factor in that Mark Rick played, when he was coaching, we played 12 games from 2012, 2015, 12 games in the regular season, as opposed to 11 when Donna was coaching from 97 to 2000. So that's four more opportunities for wins. So I would argue, okay, so Rick had the exact same number of losses and five more wins than Jim Donnan in his final four years. If you factor in that he had four more opportunities for wins, one more opportunity each of those last four years, the record between Jim Donnan and Mark Rick, each of their last four years, that's almost a wash. 
And yes, Rick did play for an SEC title in 2012. And that, that, that 2012 team was better, I think pretty clearly better than any of Jim Donnan's teams. But as good as that 2012 team was, that was a team that I think was a national championship caliber team. It just didn't work out. We, unfortunately, as seems to always be the case, had to play Alabama in the SEC title game because we play in the SEC and so does Alabama. We have to go through them to get to the playoffs and the national title conversation, all of that. And that was just unfortunate, but that was a national championship caliber team. I think that team was, if we would have won that game, I think we go and beat Notre Dame and we win the national championship. So that was a really, really good team, but that was several years before Rick was fired. The fact is the program just was not in the same place in 2015. And I, I think if you're being objective, I think you have to agree with that. And you also have to account for the fact that the SEC East was quite simply much stronger, not even close. It was much stronger when Jim Donnan was coaching between 97 and 2000 because both Florida and Tennessee, those programs were way up in the late 90s, early 2000s. And they had kind of fallen on hard times by the time Rick was fired in 2015. Jim Donnan, between 97 and 2000, had to face Steve Spurrier and Phil Fulmer each and every year. And between 97 and 2000, Florida and Tennessee combined were 80 and 20 overall. Tennessee won national title in 1998. 80 and 20 overall when Jim Donnan was coaching his last four years on the job here in Athens. Conversely, Mark Rick, when he was coaching his last four years on the job, Florida and Tennessee were 58 and 43 combined. They were not the same caliber programs. The SEC East was much more hospitable when you're going up against Will Muschamp and Jim McElwain and Butch Jones and Derek Dooley as opposed to C. Spurrier and Phil Fulmer, both guys who've won national titles. Will Muschamp, Jim McElwain, Butch Jones, Derek Dooley haven't even sniffed national titles. So I would argue that Mark Rick had about the same level of success as Jim Donnan did each of their last four years in a much more watered down SCC East than what Jim Donnan had to face in the late 90s, early 2000s. And look, again, I think Mark Rick was a really, really good coach. I love the guy. But I also think Jim Donnan gets remembered as far worse of a coach than he actually was. No, Donnan never got us over the hump, but he is the one who, he is the one actually who inherited the program in the worst place coming off the golf years. Talking about the program was in different places compared to Rick versus Kirby. The program was really in a different place when Jim Donnan took over from Ray Goff. He dramatically upgraded our talent in five years, won 73% of his games over his last four years, and really set the stage for a very good coach in Mark Rick to come in and then take the reins and take the program to the next level. But I would just also say I'm not convinced that Jim Donnan couldn't have done that if he was given a few more years. He built that roster up that Mark Rick took and won an SEC title with and then parlayed that success into being able to recruit at a high level consistently and kept the program going at a very strong level really through about 2013-ish. So to wrap this question up and kind of circle back, I just kind of reject the notion that our program was in an appreciably better place when Kirby Smart took over from Mark Richt as opposed to when Mark Richt took over from Jim Donnan. So, and you, you might not agree with me, and that's totally cool. I just, I don't think that the program was in all that of a different place. If you look at the numbers, if you look at the, the level of competition that we're facing inside the division, if you look at the recruits and the roster that Jim Donnan left Mark Richt with, I don't think it was an entirely different situation than what Kirby Smart inherited from Mark Richt after the 2015 season. 
But look, again, going back to what I said last week, I hate that we are always comparing Mark Rick and Kirby Smart. I know that's natural and it's inevitable and it's what's going to happen. Of course, it's, it's college football discussion, especially in the offseason. That's what reigns supreme. But I, I think the reality is we have been very fortunate over the past 20 or so years and we've had two really, really good coaches. Would I take Kirby Smart over Mark Rick? Yes, I would. I think he's raised level of this program to a point that we haven't seen since the early eight to, the, I guess, the early 80s. But that doesn't mean that Mark Rick wasn't a great coach. I, I hate that when you say Kirby Smart, you would take him over Mark Rick. I know that, that scene, I guess in some level, it is a slight on Mark Rick, but I don't mean it that way. I, again, think he was a fantastic coach, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to, to lowball him or demean him in any way. I think Mark was great. I just think Kirby's a little better. And I, I would, because Kirby eats, sleeps, and breathes this stuff, guys. Not that Mark didn't love this program. He wasn't committed to it. Of course he was. But Kirby, it's just a different level. It's just a different level with Kirby. And I just happen to believe that our program is in better shape right now than it was at any point under Mark Rick. Doesn't mean I'm necessarily right. That's just my opinion. And that's what I'm supposed to do here on the podcast is give you guys my opinion. So there it is. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, we're going to stick with the Kirby Smart Talk for one more question. Dante says he appreciated the Rick versus Kirby conversation last week, but he wants to follow up by asking where you would rank Kirby on a list of the top five. Excuse me, top head coaches in the nation. Is he in the top five? All right, I know I'm supposed to be one that answers these questions, Charlie, but I'm going to put this question to you real fast. Do you think Kirby Smart's a top five coach in America? Considering he's only been at Georgia for like five years, yeah, I think he's accomplished a lot. Um, He just needs to put it together to stay there. To stay in the top five? I think the question would be is like who would be ahead of him, right? Like off the top of your head, who would you put like unquestionably ahead of Kirby Smart right now? Based off of accomplishments, obviously Nick Saban – Dabo Sweeney. Um, Those are the two clear ones. Yeah, obviously. This is where it gets... Jimbo Fisher? He's won that. So let's think about the coaches, the current coaches who well, have won national titles. I wasn't even going to say him. I was going to say Ryan Day. and But he inherited a program from Urban Meyer, just like, what's his name, who can't, grill, who can't cook barbecue at Oklahoma. Oh, Lincoln um, Riley. Yeah, Lincoln Riley. Inherited a program from Bob Stoops. So you hold that against right. them? I don't hold it against them, but... Because our program wasn't... Tr- like it, was, right. it wasn't trash. It wasn't at Ohio State's level or Oklahoma's level right. when Kirby took over. But it, it was still a good program. So but but hold- they've consistently gotten to the playoff. So I would rank them up there. Jimbo Fisher? One national mm-hmm. title. Yes, but currently... Right now at Texas A and M, mm, 
I mean, they were top five all of last year. Yeah. Built that program up. We'll but they've been mired in mediocrity. Right, but he he hasn't been at AM for very long, so. But isn't that kind of a, a, a feather in his cap that he's done it so quickly? Yeah, it is the same is true for Kirby. So, yeah, you could put him up there. Maybe top six. Well, let's look at this. So let's think about the coaches who, who are currently coaching, who have won national titles, and the ones who have played for national titles. So, we've already said Sabo, Sabin, Dabo, you have above him. Jimbo Fish, we talked about. Coach O, is he a better coach than Kirby no. Smart? No. Would any program in America rather have Coach O than Kirby Smart right now, other no, than maybe LSU? I wouldn't even consider him part of the conversation. I mean, do you, even with LSU fans, if you said, hey, LSU fans, you could have Kirby Smart right now, or you get to keep Coach O. How many of them are keeping Coach O? They probably would. Like, you really think so? Because he's like a Louisiana guy? Yeah. Because he's got the deep Louisiana voice and talks about Cajun yeah. food says, go Tigers. Maybe, I guess. Mac Brown has won a national title. Not at UNC, but he's won a national title. Would you put Mac Brown ahead of Kirby Smart? Not in the current day. No. No, definitely not. I mean, same same question I just asked you. Would you think how many people at North Carolina would you think would say, yeah, let's keep Mac Brown and not say Kirby Smart? No, I don't, I don't think any of them. I don't think anyone in the right mind would say that. All right, so let's go to the coaches who have played for a national title. You mentioned some of these, but they haven't won one. So Kirby's in this in this category, right? He's played for a national title, did not win one. Ryan Day, you mentioned Ryan Day at Ohio State. I don't know. There's an argument there, right? Two different coaches. Kirby's more of a defensive guy. Ryan Day's more an offensive guy. Gus Malzahn. Would you take Gus Malzahn over Kirby Smart? Absolutely not. Isn't it kind of like borderline unbelievable that guy played for a national title? Yeah. Like it, I just can't. Like it just seems so long ago that he played for national title. Clearly, you don't take Gus Malzahn or Kirby Smart. Brian Kelly at Notre Dame played for national title. Yeah, no. No. Brian Kelly, really good coach, but I don't take him ahead of Kirby Smart. So I would take Kirby over the other three that have played for national titles but did not win one. I do, I do think Ryan Day has a really good argument because he's only been there a couple years, been in the playoffs, won, or got to the national title game, did not win it. So I think he has an argument. Of course, Ohio State fans would make that argument, but I need to see more of a sample size from him. I think if you look at the coaches who've won national titles, Saban is in his own tier, clearly. Dabo is in his own tier also. It's just a a slight notch below Nick Saban in tier number two. But then you look at the other coaches there, like I would say, like you just said, Charlie, I would give give me Kirby over Mac Brown. Give me Kirby over Coach O any day of the week. I I mean, I I got to give Coach O credit. He hired the right people, got a great transfer in Joe Burrow that took them to that national title. But how hands-on is he? How much of that was really about Coach O? And then you also got to look at what happened last year when that LSU team basically fell off the map. We talked about Jimbo. Jimbo has won a national title. But like, let me ask you this, Charlie. Do you think just because you won a national title, does that automatically make you better than a coach who hasn't won one? No. We just said Coach O. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, I agree. Like, and you think about like Dan Marino. Let's go back to like this old comparison. Quarterbacks who haven't won Super Bowls, can they be in the greatest of all time conversation? I always say yes, as it's not an individual sport. It's about so much more than just the quarterback. The quarterback's a big part of it, but it's about more than that. So, I, just because Coach O won national title, just because Jimbo won national, title, I don't think it automatically makes them better. I mean, let's just throw this out there: Gene Chizik won a national title, guys. Would anyone argue that Gene Chizik is a better coach than Kirby Smart? Absolutely not. Les Miles won a national title. No one's arguing that Les Miles is a better coach than Kirby Smart. I think Jimbo is really good. He's a good recruiter, good offensive coach. He built up a pretty quickly, but he also let Florida State fall to pieces. And I really do hold that against him. And I just, and I'm sure you can call me biased. That's fine. Call me a homer. Homer alert here. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll accept it. Whatever. But I just don't ever see that happening to this Georgia program under Kirby Smart, the way that Florida State fell apart under Jimbo Fisher. So personally, yeah, I know I'm a homer, whatever. I would put him in the top three right there behind 
Nick Saban and Dabo Swinney. I think Lincoln Riley would get an argument to be in that top three. Jimbo could get an argument. Ryan Day, you can make an argument for all three of those guys. But I would say Kirby plays in the toughest conference. He has to deal with Bama every single year in his conference. He has a, an overtime loss in the national title game. Should have had that one, whatever. Three SEC East titles, one SEC title, consistently one of the top rosters in the league, in the country. He's not perfect. It took him way too long to bring in the right offensive coordinator. But our program is in, I would argue, is in as good a shape as any program not named Alabama. And I, as I've said many times on this show, I think we can win it all any given year with the rosters that Kirby consistently puts together here in Athens. All right, next up, we have a question from one of our longest-running listeners. With a lot of talk this spring surrounding how the offensive line will shake out, Reggie asks, what is your ideal starting five up front against Clemson? Thanks for the question, Reggie. It's great to hear from you, man. This is a really cool question. What would be the ideal starting five on the offensive line against Clemson? So here's my caveat and how I'm going to respond to this question. I am taking the word ideal to heart in this response. I'm interpreting this as what would be the most talented offensive line if all of our guys on the roster, all of our offensive linemen, all the options were all ready to play at a high level. And of course, we have no way to know if they will be. But for example, ideally, it would be awesome if Amarius Mims was ready to start from day one because he is likely the most physically gifted offensive lineman on the team. I believe we would be better with him at left tackle if he was indeed that far along. The problem is there's just no guarantee that he will be. We don't know. But for the purposes of this question, this question alone, I'm just going to answer this as though all of our guys are ready to play at their potential, at their highest potential, right? So we're talking about ideally. So ideally, I'm going to start here. Ideally, I want Jamari Salyer inside at guard. We know Salyer can play a competent left tackle. We saw him do that last year. He played at a fairly high level left tackle, especially once he got his feet under him as the season progressed. But I've said for many years, I think Jamari Salyer is a natural guard prospect. I think that's where he's a better fit. Doesn't mean he can't play outside. I just think he's better inside at guard. He doesn't have the ideal length for for, uh, the left tackle position. Can play it, but I think he's a better fit at guard, power, quickness, all those things. So ideally, I want Jamari Salyer inside at guard. But for that to happen, we need someone to really step up at left tackle and be able to earn the coach's trust. Because if no one steps up that position at left tackle right now and the coaches just don't decide, if they decide they can't trust anyone other than Salyer, Salyer is going to play left tackle. And that means we're going to have to move somebody else at guard. So it should be Justin Schaefer probably, and then somebody else, maybe Tate Ratledge, maybe Webb, who knows who it might be. There's a couple different options there. Austin Blasky is actually a name that I've heard a lot of buzz about the past couple of weeks. So we have some options there. But again, ideally, I want Jamari Salyer inside a guard, and that means someone has to step up at left tackle. Ideally, at left tackle, I would like to see either Amarius Mims or Broderick Jones play that position. If one of those guys be ready, that would be ideal for me because I think both of those two, not saying Xavier Trust can't play, Xavier Trust can be a good player. Not saying that Warren McClendon can't be a good player. Of course he can. We saw him play at a decently good level last year, but I think Broderick Jones and Amarius Mims have the two highest ceilings of all the tackle prospects currently on our roster. So ideally, it'd be fantastic if one of those two guys were ready to earn the coach's trust and play that position at a high level. That would be ideal. Then, uh, so that put them at left, one of those two at left tackle, Jones or Mims. Then you put ideally Salyer at left guard. Ideally, 
I would like to see Cedric Van Pran at center. Right now, from what I understand, from what I'm hearing around the program right now, Warren Erickson still has the edge, and Warren Erickson is a good, solid player. I'm fine if Warren Erickson has to start the year. He's shown that he can play at a good, solid level. I just don't think that Warren Erickson has as high of a long-term ceiling as a guy like Cedric Van Pran. Right now, it's yeah, it's pretty clear he's probably ahead of him right now. There's still a long way to go. But again, from the ideal offensive line, ideally, Cedric Van Pran would develop and grow enough to where he's on close enough to an even level in a knowledge standpoint, technique standpoint, all those kind of things to where his natural physical abilities can shine through and he is going to be our starting center. So that would be my ideal at center, be Cedric Van Pran. At right ta- right guard, I'm actually going to go with a guy uh, that might surprise some of you. We haven't talked much about him. We're going to talk a little bit more about him on the spring practice recap episode later this week with Curtis. But just a little spoiler here, there's a lot of positive buzz around Tate Ratledge right now on the inside of the offensive line, particularly at guard. He's really trying to push for some playing time, some sort of rotation role potentially. We know Justin Schaefer is the guy who came back for another year's COVID year, and he's certainly got the inside track. He's far more experienced. And Schaefer's been a good player for us but he has been inconsistent at times. And Ratledge is another guy, just like Van Pram at center. I think he has a higher long-term ceiling than a guy like Justin Schaefer. Clearly, he doesn't have the experience of a Justin Schaefer, but he has a higher long-term ceiling. So if he can get to the point where our coaches trust him to go in there and play, I think it would be ideal if a guy like Tay Ratledge was actually the guy who ends up starting at right guard. And then at right tackle, look at him, Warman Clinton was fine. I just think we have better tackle prospects on our roster right now. So whoever doesn't win the job at left tackle, let's put them there. So I, again, ideally, let's say let's say Amarius Mims wins the left tackle job. Then I would want Roger Jones at right tackle, ideally. Or if Jones is the left tackle, coaches feel like he's a better fit there, then I want Mims to be the right tackle. Again, ideally. I do not think in any world that's what the offensive line is going to look like going into week one against Clemson. I don't think that at all. But if you're asking me, ideally, again, I'm taking that word very literally here, taking that to heart in this response, that would be my ideal lineup. Let's go uh, Broderick Jones at left tackle, Jamari Salyer at left guard, Cedric Van Pran at center, Tate Ratledge at right guard, and Amarius Mims at right tackle. That'd be my ideal starting five against Clemson, although I'm under no illusions that will not happen. All right, another question comes from Jared, and this is a long one, so I'm going to ask the full question, and then you can answer it as you see fit. Take it from there. Take some notes, because it's a long one. Jared asks, what are your thoughts about playing our second string differently? Why do we always, when given the opportunity, to send our second string in just to hand off? Why can't we put in Beck or Vandegrift and let them run the entire offense? In Jared's opinion, this would keep many of the talented guys who are not starting happy and maybe minimize transfers. He knows we don't want to run the score up on people, but with all this talent, we have to find a way to keep them engaged, which I agree with. Yeah. Plus, it would make. He also says that it would make our backups more experienced. So, what are your thoughts, Jared? I think this is a great point. You guys know that. I believe in Kirby Smart. I think he's a fantastic coach. I think he's raised our program to a level we haven't seen in 40 or so years. But that doesn't mean he's flawless. That doesn't mean he's perfect. He's still a young coach. He's still growing a lot of ways. And one thing, and I think I've said this on the show before, but for those of you who might not have heard me say this, one thing that has frustrated me with Kirby is exactly what Jared is talking about. We just let our foot off the gas far too early. And yes, look, I know, and I'm even talking about when games are put away. I know, I know there's games where 
we are going to win the game. We're going to win it going away, no matter what he does when he sends the second and third string guys in, when he sends the reserves in there. But it's always frustrated me that he just pulls his foot entirely off the gas. We're not talking about letting off the gas going from like 100 miles an hour to 50 miles an hour. We're talking about letting your foot off the gas from 100 miles an hour to like half a mile an hour. That's what we do. And that frustrates me for a couple of reasons. Number one, Kirby's all about building a culture, right? He talks about this all the time. He's done a fantastic job building the culture here, the mentality in our program. And when you just let your foot off the gas so dramatically like that, I think on some level, it sends kind of a, like at least an unconscious message to some degree that you don't have to go 100 miles an hour all the time. And I don't necessarily love that. I know that it's the old kind of gentleman's agreement, the old cliches, you don't want to run the score up on somebody, you don't want to show somebody up. And I'm, I am all for that. I don't think you want to show someone up. But my argument would be, I think there is a difference between just running your offense, running your plays, and actively trying to run the score. To me, trying to run the score is more like when you're up by three, four touchdowns with a minute and a half to go, and you're running trick plays, right? It's it's fourth and one, and you run a fake punt with a minute to go, and you're just trying to run the score up. That's totally different to me than just running your offense. That's a different story. I am of the opinion it is the other team's job and their responsibility to stop us. I know that might sound harsh, but that that's how this sport works. That's how sports in general work. And there's a couple reasons I buy into that. Number one, I'm with you, Jared. I'm not sure how much like the average casual fan understands just how much these backups, the reserves, the walk-ons, how much they put in the program and how hard they work. And they get none of the glory for that. Absolutely none of it. But guys, working on the scout team, I mean, if you love football, it can be fun on some level, but that is tough work. You're going against grown men who are bigger, stronger, more physical than you, faster than you, just more athletic, just better than you. And you're getting beat up and you're nobody's priority. Nobody really cares if you get beat up. They just want to make sure you don't beat up the starters. That's all they really care about. And they fight and they bleed and they work for this program. And it's all behind the scenes with absolutely no fanfare. No one talks about you. Half the, you know, half the fan base doesn't even know who your name is most of the time. So for me, when those guys get in the game, it bothers me when all they're allowed to do is turn around and hand off right, turn around, take a, take a knee, whatever it is. When they just get you know the most basic vanilla calls that you can possibly imagine. I hate that for them because those guys work their tails off and they do it again for no recognition. No one knows who they are. No one knows what they're doing, what they're sacrificing. Now, sure, it's great to be on the Georgia football team. I'm not acting like they're slaves out there or something. No, there are benefits to it. But the fact is those guys work really, really, really hard by the scenes. And they are so critical in getting our team ready to go out there and win games on Saturday. So when they get in the game, if we're blowing a team out, I think they deserve the right to actually run our offense, to actually run our defense. I think they deserve that. And you're right, Jared. It's not just about what's fair. Sure, that's part of it for me, but it also helps morale. The transfer portal has become a big issue in college athletics, basketball, football, you name it. It's become a big issue. 
And one way that you can at least mitigate some of the numbers that actually end up in the transfer portal that leave your program is to give them opportunities on the field. And when they get opportunities on the field, let them actually showcase what they can do. Let them like develop. You know, there's one thing getting reps, but if you ever want these guys who you know are first year, second year, third year, aren't stars, aren't really in the rotation, but they still have aspirations one day to get in the rotation. When they get in the game, that's where most of their development's gonna come. Sure, you can get practice reps, but they're spending so much time on the, on the scout team in the season, they're not really getting a ton of reps unless you're in the two deep. They're not getting real reps with the actual like team. They're just running the, the opposing team's plays. So their development can really happen when they get opportunities in real life game settings and how much they actually develop if they aren't given opportunities to actually run your offense, to actually run your defense and do the things they're going to have to do if they ever find themselves in the rotation, which is what they all want to do. So I think it helps from a developmental standpoint for your entire roster. I think it helps keep some guys out of the transfer portal because it keeps morale. They know that if they can work hard, there's going to be a chance to get in the game and actually showcase what you can do and run the real offense, run the real defense, all those things. I think you're really on to something there, Jerry. I totally agree with that. And I would also add this to the equation. In the day and age of the college football playoff, and even with the BCS, I know they like to say that margin of victory doesn't really matter and and all those things don't really matter that much, but come on, guys. Absolutely, it does. There's no doubt it matters. We're talking about human beings that are on this college football playoff committee, human beings that have biases, human beings that can't watch every single college football game, human beings that get a lot of their information by looking at stat lines, by looking at box scores. Do you not think if they looked at a Georgia versus Venom box score and the score was 60 to 7 as opposed to 38-13? Do you not think they'd be far more impressed with a 60 to 7 score? Do you not think that has some impact on how they perceive Georgia? You absolutely have to believe it does. Of course it does. When they look at Georgia and like, okay, yeah, well, Georgia, yeah, we won the game easily. It wasn't really ever in doubt. It was never really a game, but we ended up beating Vanderbilt, let's say 38-13. Whereas Oklahoma, they beat Kansas 60 to 7, okay? Something like that. They're going to look at Oklahoma as a more dynamic team, even though they even though they're gonna say, oh, that doesn't really factor in all that much. Yes, it does. It absolutely at least I personally believe that it does. So I do think that in in on some level, it can impact our chances to get into the Coswell playoff. Like when you go back to 2018 and 2019, and Oklahoma gets in ahead of us each of those years. They get in as the number four seed. We're left out as the number five seed. Sure, they can say that, well, Oklahoma won the Big 12 title. They, they're a conference champion, so that puts them in over Georgia. But come on, don't give me that. They play in a weak joke of a conference, much weaker than the SEC. Maybe I shouldn't call the Big 12 a joke, but it's nowhere near as competitive and brutal as the SEC. So I don't buy that. What I see is that Oklahoma, and I know what they're looking at, Oklahoma is just beating the holy crap out of teams. In Georgia, yeah, we're winning games easily. It's not really much of a contest, but we're not blowing those teams out. You can't tell me that doesn't have, when it's that close, when it's that thin of a margin between like Georgia and Oklahoma, You can't tell me that the margin of victory does not have some sort of influence on how these members of the Coswell Playoff Committee are voting. You cannot convince me of that. I can't prove it, but you can't convince me otherwise. I firmly believe, since these are human beings we're talking about, it clearly has an impact 
on how they perceive these teams. And Kirby just will not actively try to run this. And I'm not saying actively try to run the score. He just pulls back. The other teams just, they put their backups in, they'll put reserves in, but they're still running their offense. Watch these college football games. They're still running their offense late in the game. And if they score, great. If the other team stops them, that's fine too. But they're not going to just stop running their offense, stop running their defense. They're going to still run what they've, what they, what they have in their system, even if it's with those reserves who are third and fourth string. We just don't do that. And I know Kirby, I know he's trying to be respectful of his fellow coaches. I understand there's like an unwritten honor among coaches and Kirby really buys into that. And I guess I can respect that. I can to a degree. But Kirby's responsibility is to the University of Georgia and getting us to the college football playoff and winning us a national title. And I know he wants to do that more than any of us do. I'm not questioning that. I'm just saying... You've got to do whatever it takes, even if it's a small thing that you might not think matters that much. You've got to try to beat teams. Don't go up by three touchdowns halfway through the third quarter and just completely stop trying to run offense. Don't do that. Just let your, don't, I'm not saying again, actually try to run the score by running trick plays and doing things like that, but just run your offense. Make the other team stop. You know, if they don't, well, that sucks for them. That's all them. They need to improve. They need to get better. You've got to do what's best for our program. And I'm with you, Jared. I think what's best for our program is when these backups, when these reserves get in there, you got to let them play. It's how they develop. It improves morale. It can also have an influence if there's a thin, at the end of the season, if there's a very thin margin between number four and five, we haven't be one of those two teams. It can absolutely help you get in the college football playoff. I firmly believe that. And for our last question of the day, Connor says that with Kamara entering the portal, it's clear that this program is going nowhere fast and we'll be lucky to win 10 games next year. Ouch. So at this point, people feel that way right now. Yeah. At this point, how can Josh Brooks justify keeping Tom Crean around? Yeah, Connor, I I see where you're coming from here, man. I really do. And I I will admit, when Tumani Kamara, when the news first hit that he was transferring, I was not happy at all. No, not a happy dude. Because I did consider Tumani Kamara to be one of our core three players on this basketball team that we just couldn't really afford to lose. But now that I've had some time to kind of digest this and see how things transpired and some of the guys that we picked up ourselves in the transfer portal, I, I would also argue like let's not make Tumani Kamara out to be something that he wasn't. I did consider him part of our core three along with Katie Johnson and Severe Wheeler, but Kamara was very much a work in progress. Yes, he was an incredibly physically gifted player, and that's why I considered him part of our core three because I think he has an incredibly high upside. I still believe Tumani Kamara has a very high upside. He's a good ways away from reaching that upside because he's still very, very raw, still relatively new to the game of basketball. And we have seen him improve from year to year. But again, let's not make him out to be something that he wasn't. He really had no offensive game. He was a rim runner. He could finish the rim, those kind of things. He could knock down a three occasionally. But the guy was a 26% shooter from three-point land this past season, 17% as a freshman. So he improved which makes sense because, again, he's very raw. He's growing. He's learning. And I think he has the potential to be a better three-point shooter. It's not a bad-looking stroke, but the fact is he shot 26% from three-point land this year. Did average 12.8 points, 7.7 rebounds. Was a really good player for us. Again, I thought he was part of our core three. Did some really good things for us. Was a good, had, has a really high upside as a defender. Was certainly inconsistent as a defender, but has that upside. He has that physical, athletic upside that you're just gifted with. That's all That's all it is. It's a gift. Now, he's got to mold himself into a better player, but the upside is there. So I was certainly not happy to see him transfer out. In fact, I was at that point, I was like, all right, man, like what What are we doing with Tom Crean? I was right there with you, Connor. Like, what are we doing with Tom Crean? 
It's one thing if guys like Michael Starks transfer out, the guy didn't really play at all, but when one of your core three players transfers out, that's a red flag for me. That 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 is concerning. There's no doubt. And so at that point, I mean, I was texting with Curtis. I was like, man, like, what are we doing? Like, because all season long, I, I've been telling you guys, like, what, I'm I'm down with giving him one more year. I said at the end of the year, if you guys missed the basketball episode, basically my position was, I'm okay if we move on from Tom Crean. I'm okay if we give him one more year. I, I'm not convinced he's the guy yet, but I'm not convinced he's not the guy either. Because we have seen progress. We're not where we want to be. There are some things concerning me, particularly when it comes to recruiting. But he has shown progress each of his first couple years here in Athens, and it's kind of mirroring what he did at other stops, whether it's Marquette, especially Indiana. So I could see a rationale for giving him another year. Again, not convinced he's the guy, but not convinced that he's not the guy. So I was kind of like just straddling the line there. I know, you know on a, when you host a podcast, you're not supposed to straddle the line, but I'm just trying to be honest with you guys. I try to be upfront with you. That's kind of where I was with Tom Cream. But then we see Kamara leaving. It's like, oh my God, now I'm pushed over the edge. Let's just get rid of him. But I've had some time to think about it again. And, I, and I've also seen who we've gone to the transfer portal to replace Kamara with. And I really like what I've seen. Like when you lose a guy like Kamara, it's all about who you replace him with. If you lose him and have to replace him with someone like Jonathan Ned from the transfer ranks, then yeah, that's a problem. That's a major downgrade. But if you lose a guy like Tamani Kamara and then you go and replace him with a guy like Jalen Ingram from FAU or Jabri Abdur-Rahim, son of Sharif Abdur-Rahim from Virginia, is one of the, who is the second highest rated recruit in Virginia basketball history, who, oh, by the way, a couple years ago, just won a national title, guys. One of the, that has become the top program in the ACC over the past five or six years. When you're taking a player like that from Virginia, he didn't play a lot last year. Well, those are the kind of guys like, oh, wait a minute. Not only am I okay with taking those guys or replacing Kamara with them, I think those guys, I think you can make a very strong argument. They could end up being an upgrade over Kamara. Now, do they have as high of a long-term ceiling as Kamara? Maybe not. But right now, if we're talking about trying to win next year, I think both Jalen Ingram and Abdur Rahim can probably help us win more next year than Tamani Kamara. I would love to keep Kamara and land both those guys, but that's just not how it works. But when you look at Jalen Ingram, one thing I'm really excited about Jalen Ingram, this transfer from FAU, dude shot 45.2% from three-point land last year. What did I tell you guys all last year? When we talked basketball, one of my big things, yes, we turn the ball over way too much. No, we don't play defense. But the biggest thing, more than anything, because this game has become so offensive, we just had no shooters on the court. Too many guys that could not shoot the three. And Tom Crean's offense is kind of built around space in the court so that you can hurt teams with the three-point shot. When you have a guy like Severe Wheeler, who is was our most consistent offensive threat, his strongest attribute is getting to the rim. He doesn't shoot well himself. So you need to surround him with shooters so it clears out the lane, creates space, and he can get to the rim and finish there or dribble, drive, and kick out to shooters. The problem was last year, we had very few shooters to kick out to. Maybe Katie Johnson, once he got eligible and got in the lineup. But outside of that, I mean, PJ Horn occasionally, but he was so up and down. Justin Kyer occasionally up and down. Ty Fagan couldn't hit a three to save his life. Kamara shot 26%. We didn't have the shooters around him. We need shooters in a big, big way. And Jalen Ingram, if anything, he is that. He's also 6'7", 215, so about an inch shorter than Tamani Kamara. Uh, averaged 12.3 points per game last year. FAU, 6.1 rebounds a game. So he's a guy that, in my opinion, is a very welcome addition. I think he's more of a fit for what we do 
with Tom Crean trying to stretch the court a little bit and create space for guys like Xavier Wheeler to operate there uh, with his dribble penetration abilities. And then Abdur Rahim, who's a former top 40 national recruit, he was a freshman this year for Virginia. Didn't really play a lot because Sam Hauser was a stud for, for Virginia, basically in that same position. He's also 6'7", about 210, 215 pounds, similar size to Jalen Ingram. And I love Abdur Rahim's game. I went back and pulled up some highlights from, from his uh, high school days. He's long. He can handle the ball. He's a very good passer. I would say he's really a point four. At least that's how they played him in high school. Now, I know high school is a different animal. We're talking about the SEC, talking about Power 5 basketball here, but I think he has the skill set with his ability to handle the ball. I mean, he, he would go coast to coast often. A very good passer with, with, with that skill set. I think he has the ability to be a point forward. Now, he doesn't have the cleanest stroke uh, in, in terms of his, his shot, but he can absolutely knock down a shot. He's, there's no doubt about that. He's shown that on tape. Again, I think he's a really good fit for our team. He's long. He's, you know, we really like to to cut towards the rim. He's a guy that can do that. He can pass the ball. He can hit those guys. He can hit those cutters. He can knock down shots, at least at a higher clip than what we saw from Tamani Kamara. So when you lose Kamara, that sucks in a vacuum. But when you're just wait a week or two and you see who we replace him with, I think you might actually that it could potentially become an upgrade. And we'll see how it plays out this year. But I think there's an argument, at least for this year, it could be an upgrade. Now, I, again, I will admit that I grew frustrated with Tom Cream as the season wound down last year because you know the guy's transferring out and his recruiting has been so subpar the past couple classes. But I will say this for Tom Cream: The guy, as far as I'm concerned, has proven he can coach basketball. He's just got to do a better job getting the players in here. And that's what my concern was. But if he can get transfers like Ingram and Abdur Rahim instead of Michael Starks and Jonathan Ned, then I'm willing to see what next year can be like. Now, he's got to win next year. We've got to make significant progress next year. But I'm at least willing to see what some of these guys he's bringing to the program. We factor in, we still have Severe Wheeler, still have Katie Johnson, still have guys like that. And I know it's been popular to say that when, you, when, when you're criticizing the Georgia basketball program, people that are, are criticizing Tom Crean, I know it's been a popular refrain that you just can't have this kind of roster turnover every year, all these transfers, and and manage to be successful. And to that, I would just respectfully ask, have you really watched college basketball over the past two to three years? Because that's what this sport has become with the transfer portal and immediate eligibility. This is not a Georgia or Tom Crean thing, attrition like this, high levels of attrition in college basketball. It's not a Georgia thing. It's not a Tom Crean thing. This has become a college basketball thing. It's one of the reasons that Roy Williams decided to hang it up in North Carolina. I mean, let's use Florida, for example. Florida's already lost six guys off their tournament team this year, maybe seven if Castleton decides to stay in the NBA draft. Right now, he's testing the waters. He's not hiring agents. He's going to see. They can lose up to seven guys. But they've gone out and they've hit the transfer portal and they've got some big time players like CJ Felder from Boston College. They've restocked their roster. And that's what college basketball has become. Guys that the coaches are going to be successful in college basketball moving forward are the coaches that can keep their best players on the roster and then manage the transfer portal the best around those guys. Now, Crean hasn't been great at that to this point. But maybe now with landing Jalen Ingram and Jabri Abdur-Rahim, maybe that's a sign that it's starting to change. And I hope that's the case. I'm open to the possibility that Tom Crean can improve on the recruiting trail. It just hasn't been great in the past couple years. And the bottom line is, like, we just have to accept that at this point, he's not going anywhere. At this point in the season, absent some sort of scandal, Tom Crean's not going anywhere. It's April. We're not firing him. He's not moving on. He, I'm, 
I heard some rumors he was looking for jobs. He's trying to maybe get that Marquette job. It didn't work out for him. He's still here. So he's going to be our coach next season. So let's just give him a chance to reshape this roster and just see what it looks like heading into next season. Because again, I would argue we kept the two most important pieces. It sucks to lose Kamara. I think he has a high ceiling. I would love for him to still be on this roster. But the two most important players that we need to keep more than anyone were Severe Wheeler and Katie Johnson, in my opinion. And we've so far kept both those guys and have added some really good players that I think can be major additions to this team as early as next year. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. All right, guys, before we get out of here today, we do want to spread the love around to some other sports on campus that don't usually get as much attention as football. We like to do this whenever we get a chance to, and we're going to do it here today. Let's start with the Diamond Dogs. The baseball team went into Nashville this past weekend and came out with a series victory over number one Vanderbilt, taking two out of three from the Commodores. This is the first time Vandy has lost an SEC series in over two years. Our bats finally came alive. It's been a long time coming. We scored 25 runs over the course of the weekend, hit nine home runs. And for reference sake, we only had 26 home runs through the first 28 games, hit nine home runs over three games in Nashville against Vanderbilt. Gets probably the best pitching side, at least the top one-two punch in the country. Had 27 hits. We absolutely, no pun intended here, rocked Kumar Rocker. It was his worst agony of the season by a pretty wide margin. Um, gave up. He had only given up four earned runs and 16 hits through his first seven games. He gave up six earned runs, couple home runs, 11 hits against us on Thursday night. And then I was going to mention this. This was a really good sign for us. John Cannon, who's been battling back from mono, he's had a couple starts since coming back from mono, but he's still kind of getting back into the rhythm of things. He had by far his best start of his career on Saturday. He was going to be our number one pitcher coming this season. Of course, got sidetracked with Mono, but he went seven strong, gave up zero earned runs, nine strikeouts on Saturday to clinch the series victory over the Commodores. And so now the Diamond Dogs hit at five and seven in the SEC. It's not where we want to be, but the schedule's going to lighten up over the next couple of weekends. We get Kentucky, Missouri, and Auburn over the next three weekends. Uh, Missouri and Auburn are. The two worst teams right now, at least record-wise, in the SEC. So we have a chance at a couple more series wins here and get our conference record on the right side of 500. So I'm really excited to see what the Diamond Dogs are able to do over the weekend. Hopefully this is a sign of things to come. As I told you guys, this is a team that was losing a lot of key players. We were young in a lot of key spots. But it's a team I felt that was going to improve more and more as the season went on. And maybe this is a sign of that actually happening. Now, we got to follow it up. But beating Vanderbilt, giving, handing them their first SEC series loss in over two years, that's certainly heading in the right direction. So shout out to the Diamond Dogs this past weekend. I also want to give some love to the track and field team. We never talk track and field, 
But the, uh, I don't know, the track and field dogs is that what we're going to go with. They had a huge weekend in Athens at the Spec Towns Invitational. Everyone knows the name Matthew Bowling, right? We know this guy. He's the burgeoning superstar in the American track and field universe. And uh, he had his outdoor debut in the 100 meter, ran a 10.32. Now, y'all also have factoring, guys. It was pouring, it was wet, it was nasty, not good conditions. Ran a 10.32 meter in his outdoor debut. And under in those conditions, so pretty good day for him. He actually he also finished first long jump. I think he was always a jumper by trade. Now he's become more uh, a runner as well, a sprinter. And um, his long jump over the weekend was second all time here in the Georgia record books. So he had another great tournament, another great weekend. So shout out to Matthew Bowling. I also want to give a shout out here to freshman Jasmine Moore, who had herself a weekend, man. I'm not going to act like I'm a track and field expert. I'm absolutely not. Back in high school, I, I basically threw shot put and discus just to stay in shape for football. Our our football coaches encouraged us to do that because one of our coaches there was a guy that was big and working out. So basically, I did that to work out to get ready for football. So I know a little bit about it, but I'm not an expert in, in, by any stretch of the imagination. But Jasmine Moore... Even an idiot like me can tell she had herself an incredible weekend. So she's a freshman. Her long jump debut broke the Georgia record. It was also the second best jump in the NCAA this season. And it's number five on the current world list. Her triple jump was the best score of the year so far in NCAA and second in Georgia history. And this girl is just kidding started. So I know we know the name Matthew Bowling. But we might want to start remembering the name Jasmine Moore as well. This this young lady looks like she is set up for a fantastic career here in Athens and beyond Athens as well. Uh, then junior Carl Tilga, I think is how you pronounce the name, finished the decathlon with the second best score in NCAA history, established a school record and the best score in the world to this point this year. So shout out to Carl. Anna Hall won the heptathlon, which shot her to number three on the current world list and number two in the Georgia record books. So just a big time performance all around for the Georgia, the men and women's track and field team. I'm sure I'm leaving some people out. I know that I am, but those are the highlights from this past weekend. But just bottom line here, Petros is doing work with this track and field program. I mean, he's elevated our track and field program to one of the elites in the country. We're certainly, if not, if we're not already there, we're certainly well on our way to that point. And I'm really excited to see what they can do in Eugene later on this season in the Nationals. So shout out to the track and field team. We don't get a chance to talk much track and field, but they had a great weekend. And I wanted to throw them some love as well. And then, of course, we cannot get out of here, Charlie. I can't let you get out of here today without a little Georgia tennis talk as both the men's and the women's tennis programs had huge weekends this past weekend. The women clinched their second straight outright SEC regular season title with wins over Alabama and Auburn. The men, they notched a huge victory over number eight A&M in front of a very rowdy Georgia tennis crowd in Athens on Friday and then followed that up with a win in Baton Rouge to officially clinch the number three seed and more importantly, a first round bye in the SEC tournament in Fayetteville next week. But Charlie, let's start with the women's teams. I don't think they get as much attention and they definitely deserve it. We know how good this team is. We've been all over this for a couple of years now. We've talked about it all season. So I just want to approach this a little differently today. It was senior day on Saturday as we got to honor our three departing seniors, Katarina Jokic, Marta Gonzalez, and Elena Christofi. Unfortunately, it was pouring rain on Saturday, so the match had to be moved inside, and of course, the crowd wasn't what it otherwise would have been. So I want to give these three ladies the recognition they deserve here on our podcast. I know, again, we're a mom and pop podcast. Not that many people listen to us. It's fine. But I do want to give them some love here on our show today because we can control that. 
I just want to ask you this, Charlie. How important have those three seniors been to this program? Incredibly important. You can almost always count on a win from Kat on court one. She's dominant. I mean, the her list of accomplishments on Saturday was like, okay. It kept going on talking. and on. I was like, oh my God, we're going to start this match now. Yeah, and then Elena and Marta, you can pretty much count on them because of their leadership. They've been around the program for five years. They came back last year, which I think that their teammates really appreciated since they were given the opportunity because of the pandemic. They've been playing really well down in the pit. Um, you know, Elena started on court two when she was a freshman, but she still grinds it out and is happy playing on court Great five. Great teammate. Six, Same thing for so. Barbara's court two for the past couple years yep. and down on court five right now. And she was she was about to clinch the match on Saturday. Elena clinched it like a game before she could. And what did Marty do? She didn't have a frown. She just darted across the, the courts to get into the crowd, to, to the group of the girls there and, and hug and celebrate in the whole nine yards. But Charlie, you mentioned like when they were reading out all of Katarina Jokic's accomplishments through her career here in Athens, just how long that took. I'm not going to read all of that, but I do want to give you guys who might not go to all the matches and, and might not really follow the team as closely as Charlie and I do, I want to give you just a little bit of a taste of what these three young ladies have accomplished. So let's start with Katarina Jokic, who's in my opinion, she's certainly the best player I've ever seen in Georgia, men or women. Again, I've said this before. I did. I was. I was in college when John Isner was here. I just wasn't into tennis then, so I never really got to see him play. Obviously, an incredible player, probably the best player to ever come through Georgia. But Katarina, in terms of the players I've seen, is the best player I've seen. She was the freshman of the year in 2017. Played court one singles almost immediately upon arriving in Athens. That's how good she is. Uh, she was the fall singles national champion in 2018. She was the spring singles runner-up in 2019. I will still argue to this day that she would have won if she was not just completely worn down from our team making a deep run to the to the final match of the team tournament and also making a deep run into the doubles tournament as well. She was just flat out worn out. I think she was the best player. Clearly she was in the fall. I don't think it really changed in the spring. I think if she hadn't played all those matches that she would have won the spring singles championship as well. But she's going to be a four-time All-SEC player and four-time All-American when this year is over with. She's currently ranked number one in singles. That's where she belongs. And number four in doubles playing with the freshman Ariana Arsenault. And she's just clinched huge match after huge match. I mean, the nickname Cardiac Cat, it is extraordinarily fitting for this young lady. She's just been a fantastic player and so much fun to watch over the last four years. I'll be honest, I'm going to miss Cat because it's just so much fun to watch her play. You know you're watching greatness when you watch her play, and that's just fun for me. And then Elena. Uh, one of our fifth-year seniors, along with Mara Gonzalez. Ellen has been so good for this program. 100 doubles win. She just reached that accomplishment, I think, last week. She has been ranked as high as number eight in singles in her career. She's a two-time All-American. She was also, by the way, like her accomplishments on the court are fantastic, but her accomplishments off the court are even more impressive. She was a 2020 NCAA Women of the Year nominee. She is brilliant. She's a genius. She, uh, I think she ended her career with a 3.97 GPA in finance, which is notoriously one of the toughest majors at the University of Georgia. She's won so many different scholarships. She's just a force of nature. She's awesome on the court. She's awesome off the court. And I'm very proud to call her a damn good dog. Marta Gonzalez, same thing, same story here. Fifth year senior, chose to come back. 
She's an All-American, All-SEC player, reached a high of number 10 in the singles ranking her career. She's a lob shot extraordinaire, usually plays the longest match because she'll just lob you to death. The matches just go on and on and on and on. And I love her for it. And she's just a fantastic young lady. I don't again, I don't know her personally, but you can just you can just tell when you because the tennis facility, it's you're right there on top of the players, and you can kind of just see how they interact with each other, how they interact with their coaches. And she just seems like a fantastic young lady. So um, just shout out to all three of those players, Kat, Elena, Marta. We appreciate everything you've done, and we're absolutely going to miss you. And I just want to throw this out there too. I'm, I'm giving them a little more love here. Just one more second. Not only were they great on the court, but they also set the tone for this team and helped define its culture. It's having leadership, like like Charlie said, having leadership like those three girls are able to provide is so critical for a championship caliber team. You can be a really talented team, have a bunch of talented players, but if you don't have that leadership that helps set the culture, then you might not end up going as far as you likely should based on the talent that you have. But they're fantastic on the court and they're amazing off the court. Over the last four years, guys, this women's tennis program has gone 70 and 12 overall over the last four years. We've been 52 and 5 over the last three seasons. We're also 38 and 3 in the SEC over the last four, 28 and 0 in the SEC over the last three years. And these three young ladies were a critical part of that. They have put this program in a fantastic spot. We've always been good. This program has always been a really good program, but we have now become the dominant program in the SEC. And that does not look to be slowing down with how we are recruiting. And the on-court example, the off-court culture that these three have helped build has just been so important in setting that foundation. So again, big time love to Marta, Elena, and Kat. This program is better now than it was before they got here. And I think that's that's saying something. All right. And finally, Manny Diaz's boys are on fire right now. After starting the conference season off one and four, due, main, due mainly to injuries, we have reeled off seven straight conference wins to finish eight and four in the SEC and earn the number three seed in next week's SEC tournament. They have now won eight of their last nine, including top two top 10 wins and have now moved inside the top 10 themselves. So Charlie, what has been the difference with this team over the past month or so now they've been on this run? They're healthy. Ty- Tyler Zink has the experience he needs after He's growing last so year. much each and every match. Billy Rowe is mm, a great leader. Uh, uh, would you say we're deeper than we were last year, especially yeah. on course four through six? Yes, Five absolutely. and six mainly? Absolutely. Like un- inarguably. Blake Corridor might go to three sets, but you can usually count on him to win on four. I think Blake's much, he's stabilized now that he's come back from the back injury. Yeah. And you mentioned Tyler Jing. I know you love this kid. So if you guys don't maybe follow as close as we do, he just beat the number two singles player in the country. All right? He's like five years older than him. He's a senior. Tyler Zink, I mean, he's technically a sophomore, but he got half of a freshman year. And he is so, so talented, so gifted. He works so hard. He's very coachable. And he's been up and down at times this year, but he's really, really been coming on of late. He's been really, like when he's on, he is really, really good. And he just took out the number two single player in the country from Texas A&M, which was a huge, because honestly, we lost a doubles point against A&M on Friday, I thought the match was over because they have two players in the top five in singles. I didn't think we were going to win either one of those. Like, it's over. We lost a doubles point. But we won both those matches. Trent Bryant also won 
on court one against the number five singles player in the country. So this team is rolling. You mentioned health. That's that's the key to me. It's health and confidence. Once we got healthy, we started winning a couple matches, got in a roll. That confidence has just built. And I think we can absolutely beat anybody if we play to the level that we are capable of. And let's just hope we can carry this hot streak over into the SEC tournament in Fayetteville next weekend. But all right, guys, that does it for us today here on the Glory UGA podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in today. Curtis and I will be back to recap week four of football spring practice and also preview this coming weekend's G-Day later on this week. So make sure to check back for that. But for Charlie, I'm Tyler. And as always, go dogs.